As sports history fans, we often reminisce about the legends. Willis Reed limping onto the NBA Finals Court, Kurt Schilling's bloody sock, Kerry Strug's courageous dismount, and so many more. These moments often define sports history. But what about the countless injuries that did not become legends or careers that were derailed due to inadequate care? That's where this episode's sponsor comes in. Introducing to you, ILP Sports Consultants, your trusted sports injury partner, available 24-7. Brian Maelli at ILP Sports Consultants has over 20 years of experience in the orthopedic and sports medicine industry, and he has worked with athletes across the gamut, from youth to amateurs, professionals, in almost every sport played in the United States of America, accommodating athletes at every stage of their career. This adaptability ensures that ILP services are perfectly tailored to your skill level, no matter where you are in your athletic journey. With ILP, you are in control. Choose the steps that matter most to you. Diagnosis, treatment plan, recovery, or the whole journey. ILP services are tailored to your unique needs. Rushing for care is a common pitfall, leading to future problems. ILP Sports Consultants helps you make the right decisions, ensuring that you receive timely and safe care. And here's the bonus. Brian hosts the Injured List podcast, sharing insights and athlete stories you won't want to miss. Whether you're a concerned parent or grandparent, or an athlete yourself seeking guidance, ILP Sports Consultants is your beacon of hope in sports injury management. Visit ILPSports.com today. That's the letters ILPSports.com. ILP Sports Consultants, where your well-being is the priority and your recovery is the mission. Choose ILP Sports Consultants for a healthier sports journey, helping you get back in the game the smart way. Hi, baseball fans, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Pastime Timeline Podcast. Call it our own opening day, if you will. My name is Michael Wilkinson, and I'm going to be taking you on a year-by-year journey through the history of our great national pastime. A little bit about me, I'm 39 years old and I live in western Massachusetts, about a 30-minute drive from the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, roughly 90 miles west of Fenway Park. I've been a fan of all sports most of my life, but I only ever played baseball. Each sport has its strengths and weaknesses, but none can truly match the rich history of baseball, the sport most intricately linked to yesteryear and nostalgia. So whether you're a new fan or a seasoned veteran, it's my hope this podcast will help you learn something new and gain a more profound appreciation for the great American game. I'll begin my yearly focus in Episode 2 with the 1901 baseball season, when the American League earned major status and joined the established National League to form the two-league structure we still have today. But of course, baseball didn't start being played in the 20th century, and in this first episode, we need to take the time to set some context for the modern era. So here's a quick overview of the organized game's beginning in the 19th century. Like with much of American history, the facts and myths surrounding the origin story of baseball can become intertwined, making it difficult to distinguish which from which. But to put it as simply as possible, baseball was derived from various bat and ball games played in the early colonial days, many of which were brought over from Great Britain. In fact, the first known written reference to children playing baseball, two words, came in 1791 from Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which is about 50 miles from my home. 
But at the same time, the evolution to the game of baseball as we still know it today, with its specific rules and regulations, did occur in the U.S., so it can be declared a distinctly American product. The rules slowly developed from the 1840s through the Civil War and eventually settled by the turning of the 20th century into a rough estimate of the game we still love today. Those primary features that clearly distinguished baseball from these other bat and ball games include the number of players to a side, having nine innings with rotating at bats, three outs retires the side, three strikes are an out, four balls are a walk, fair and foul territory, as well as the shape of the field into a diamond with 90 feet between bases and 60 feet 6 inches from the rubber to home plate. When I was about 7 or 8, five years before the internet arrived, I had a toy computer you plugged into a small TV. And on that computer was a sports trivia game. And one of the questions that always popped up asked what future Civil War hero was credited with inventing baseball in Cooperstown, New York in 1839. The answer, of course, was Abner Doubleday, but as any genuine fan knows, the entire premise of the question was false. The Doubleday myth had lasted decades since an early 20th century commission set out to confirm the entire story of baseball was 100% American. Despite the efforts of many historians, there's no hard evidence of any clear point of invention or a single inventor. As the mid-1800s approached and America inched closer to civil war, the game was growing in popularity as a participatory leisure pursuit, but not as much yet as a spectator sport. And contrary to the pastoral backdrop portrayed in nostalgia, the game was being played mainly in the urban Northeast. The New England or Massachusetts game much more resembled the British-based bat and ball games such as rounders, while the game being played in the New York area much more closely resembled what we see today, albeit in a very informal way. In the 1840s, the first well-known established baseball club was the New York Knickerbockers, who found the cramped city blocks of Manhattan too restricting. So they set out across the Hudson River to Hoboken, New Jersey, where they encountered the Elysian Fields. The luscious green expanse proved the perfect laboratory to test out new rules and ways to play the game. In 1845, the founder of the Knickerbockers, Alexander Cartwright, put pen to paper and established the Knickerbocker rules, making Cartwright sort of the Thomas Jefferson of baseball. But efforts to make Cartwright the inventor of the game have also fallen a bit flat. Unlike Doubleday, Cartwright was actually highly involved in the game. But as with the nation's founding fathers, baseball's founding proved to be an organic collaborative effort. The Knickerbockers were far from the only organized club at that time, as various upper-class professions and social groups wanted in on the ever-expanding national game. But the Knickerbockers did start the process of drawing spectators in the 1840s and 1850s and turning the sport into a potential business opportunity. It was around this time that fans began to be charged to enter and watch the game. Ironically, but also in a way fittingly, the event that got the entire country on board with baseball was also the event that put America on the brink of destruction. The Civil War was waged for the soul of a young nation, but baseball would serve as a sort of medication to heal the wound left by the horrific conflict. As the soldiers for the Union and Confederate armies relocated to fight battles that would decide the future of the Republic, they spent much of their downtime playing and teaching baseball to anyone they may have come across, including prisoners of war. 
The 1860s saw the game transform from a primarily upper-class endeavor to a truly national pastime, appealing to all classes, races, and regions. With the game's owners now turning a profit and that American desire to win overwhelming, in 1869 the inevitable finally happened, which was the first professional team in Harry Wright's Cincinnati Red Stockings. The Red Stockings were the precursors of today's Yankees, Red Sox, and Dodgers, Wright simply bought the best players in the country, severing the ties of the local town team which played for pride and love of the game. The Red Stockings barnstormed throughout the country, particularly the eastern U.S., and as expected won nearly every contest waged against local teams. Their exquisite exhibition of baseball lit aflame the young republic's imagination and set us further along the path toward a national obsession. Once the professional dam was broken, the river flowed through rather quickly. By 1871, just two years after the Red Stockings, the National Association was formed. So the appetite for widespread professional baseball was clearly evident. However, mismanagement and corruption doomed the association after just five seasons. But the population's demand to witness the highest level of baseball led to the formation of a well-funded, well-structured, organized league. You may have heard of it, the National League, the oldest pro sports organization in American history. League president William Hulbert compiled the wealthiest group of owners and made sure all teams remained fiscally viable at all times. And compared to the early years of the other three major sports leagues, the NFL, NBA, and NHL, the number of teams that quickly died out remained relatively low, keeping the trajectory of the professional sports stable. In fact, the current franchises residing in Cincinnati, Chicago, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, and Philadelphia trace back to the earliest days of the National League, even if they're not all considered the original franchise. But unfortunately, as baseball exploded in scope and popularity across all societal cross-sections, it opened the door for a nefarious force to gain a grip and place the game into its first crisis. The widespread prevalence of gamblers roaming the crowd not only shook the moral framework of the fans, but eventually affected the players themselves. Outright throwing of games was way too prevalent at that point in time. And sadly, even the advent of the first professional teams and league wouldn't completely end such illicit activities for several decades. Another moral battle being fought through baseball at this time was the presence of alcohol. As we all know from attending games today, the belligerent drunk is kind of a staple in the bleachers of any stadium. But the much more informal settings and close proximity of 19th century ball grounds set the possibility for mayhem. It became so bad that the National League banned alcohol from the premises of its games, which spurred the formation of the American Association in 1882, or as most people knew it, the Beer and Whiskey League. Owners of the new circuit allowed fans to drink, probably their biggest calling card, and they drew in even more people by undercutting the NL on the price of admission. Sadly, the American Association of the 1880s employed the last African-American player in the majors until Jackie Robinson in 1947. Moses Fleetwood Walker played 23 games for the Toledo team before being excluded. At the same time baseball took off as a national obsession, Jim Crow laws began to expand throughout the country. The earliest Negro Leagues began in the late 19th century, but wouldn't come to Providence until early in the 20th. However, segregation of the time would inspire a young coach named Branch Rickey, 
who would remember the injustices he witnessed and become an instrumental figure in bringing together all Americans through the game of baseball. In our fourth episode covering 1903, we'll discuss the very first World Series. Well, actually not so much. Another lost fact of baseball history is that for seven seasons, from 1884 through 1890, the pennant winners of the National League and the American Association would swear off in a World's Championship Series. Those series were very informal and disorganized compared to the modern World Series, with two of those seven being declared a tie. In 1892, the National League employed a split-season format, which we'll see again on the timeline, and had a playoff to determine a champion. Then from 1894 through 97, the first and second place finishers competed for the Temple Cup. The relative stability of the National League did not mean they were without their struggles, and the initial major struggle was the same which will pop up again and again throughout the sport's history. That's right, owners and players have never gotten along. Players have always felt underpaid, and owners have always sought ways to pay them less than market value. And gamblers found a way to make the rift even wider by attacking the integrity of the game through offering players money to fix results. Although not as infamous as the Black Sox scandal of 1919, Louisville Gray's star pitcher Jim Devlin and three teammates were banished from the game in 1877 for taking bribes to throw games. After being denied on appeal several times with no success, Devlin passed away at the age of 34. The status of being a pro ball player was something nobody wanted to give up, so it would be another decade plus before players would take matters into their own hands. The players' revolt came to a head with the formation of the Players' League in 1890. Former Providence pitcher John Montgomery Ward was as smart when it came to economics as he was on the mound. He viewed the players as underpaid and undervalued with no recourse in bargaining for their wages. After Ward formed the first Players' Association, which led Ward to start the Players' League. Despite some initial success, having three so-called major leagues proved to be too much supply to match the population at the time. The American Association and the Players' League failed to survive past the 1891 campaign. By the 1892 season, the NL had shrugged off two competitors to remain the sole major league. But independent minor leagues sprang up across the fruited plain in towns and smaller cities. And in the decades prior to the farm system, minor league organizations and rosters were secure and held dear by the local fans. Van Johnson's Western League had proven to be the most successful of the minor leagues. Johnson's commitment to clean and fair play is what distinguished it from the National League. The rough-and-tumble baseball played by the NL in the decade turned many fans off and opened up a sizable new market. In 1899, the senior circuit lost four unsustainable franchises, and Johnson sensed a chance to strike. He dared to take on the National League by the dawn of the 20th century. He declared Major League status and renamed his circuit the American League, which would start as a Major League in 1901, according to his plans. His cadre of super-wealthy owners lured NL stars such as Cy Young and Napoleon Lajoie to the new Major League. The AL moved into East Coast megacities Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and Washington. Johnson shoved all his chips to the center of the table, and although most in the game's establishment doubted him, 
His incredible gamble paid off and set the stage for a new structure and a new reality for the great national pastime. That's where we'll leave it today. That sets up a nice basic foundation of the game's history through the 19th century. We'll pick up with a year-by-year focus of the 20th century season starting with the 1901 season in Episode 2. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.